Welcome to the Brentwood Academy podcast. We are a co-educational, independent college preparatory school near Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to nurture and challenge each whole person, body, mind, and spirit to the glory of God. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the stories, lives, and relationships that make BA such a special place. For more information about BA, visit BrentwoodAcademy.com. Now on to today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Jean Natwick, and today we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're actually taking this podcast off campus and heading into Nashville to the Thistle Cafe. If you haven't heard of Thistle Cafe, I think you're going to be surprised to know that it's beyond a beautiful cafe and really, really good food. I mean, it is pretty amazing. But Thistle Cafe is just one component of the Thistle Farms ministry that helps women that have survived trafficking, prostitution, and addiction, giving them a second chance at life. So I have the privilege of sitting down with Becca Stevens, who's the founder of Thistle, um, to talk about how Thistle came about, the backstory. And I also want to mention that we are very excited and honored to have her come and speak at Brentwood Academy on growing and sustaining leadership on April 11th which is free and open to the public. Um, We'll be touching on that subject, growing and sustaining leadership in our podcast today. So stick around, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Becca. I'm so excited to have you here, Becca. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy, and I'm glad we're doing it right here at Thistle Farms. It's nice to have y'all in our territory. That's good. I know. I only wish that people can see what this place looks like because it's spectacular. It's beautiful. Not to mention the food is amazing. Um, so, Becca, that you have a an enormous background, but your story goes deep. So, I look at you today, and you are a social entrepreneur. You're an author. You're a top ten CNN hero, um, speaker, a priest, but you're also a survivor, and that's that's where your story starts, mm-hmm. obviously, and. Um, what I would love to hear a little bit about before we get into Thistle Farms, being the president of Thistle Farms and how this was born. What, I, what I'm interested yeah. to know is the start of your story, the start of your journey, and how that led to Thistle Farms. Sure. Um, you know, I was not native Nashville. I came when I was five years old. My dad was an Episcopal priest, and my mom and dad moved from New York. And my mom was about 35 years old, and they have five kids. So they just packed up station wagon and headed down. And he was going to start a plant a church here in Nashville. But he was killed that year by a drunk driver. So we had just started this really small church, and um, my mom was left as a widow at 35 with five kids. And then it was the... Um, the guy that was running that small community for my dad that started sexually abusing me. And that abuse began, I was six years old, and it lasted in my memory and what I've pieced together and what I've gone back and talked to his family about. I think it went on until I was about nine years old. So that is, when you were saying, I mean, that is formative in my life, and it really are, those memories are some of my first memories, especially around, you know, the when my dad was, killed that was very traumatic and I do think those are some of the places and some of the roots that were planted that grew the seeds of thistle farms of wanting to really have a safe and powerful community of women survivors that could help change our language our culture you know and what we think is acceptable 
And what's amazing to me um, in hearing you tell this, because it's it's interesting, and, and this is where I'm sure Thistle Farms is, is what helps kind of catapult people to make the decision for change. But what was it in you, do you think, that was kind of that drive that just, that wasn't something that tore you. I'm sure it did tear your heart apart, mm-hmm. but it also sounds to me like it may have actually pushed you in some way, shape, or form to go in this direction, to take this journey. Well, I think that for... You know, there are so many folks who have a history of sexual trauma in their life, and a lot of them, a lot of those folks have it from childhood. And so not everybody necessarily acts the same. I mean, there's universal issues around sexual trauma, and we do bear those on our individual backs, but we don't all bear them the same. And I think for the women that I serve, I just know a little bit about maybe what they've gone through. I mean... I don't like to compare anybody's story with anybody else, but I think I can't imagine really living through some of the stories I've heard from the women survivors. And I think for me, I had a wonderful mom. I mean, she was definitely overwhelmed, and we were definitely part of the vulnerability of poverty that people experience. But she was a lifesaver for real. And there was also some amazing women in my life, and men too, but a lot of women, like the Episcopal Church women, I think of that group, they were so supportive and kind. So I knew, like, really how dangerous church could be or how abusive. Right. But I also knew how beautiful and lovely it could be. The other thing I will say is that I never had that problem. I can't tell you why. God was never a problem for me. And that is the biggest grace I've known in my whole life. I've always thought God was love. And I never, like, wanted to turn away from God or my journey of, of healing because I was angry. I never felt that. So there was, you know, there was, I was definitely confused. I definitely acted out, all that kind of stuff. But it was always like, okay, God's, of all the different problems I've had, it's not like believing in God or thinking that God doesn't love me. You trusted him. Yeah. And I don't know why that was. You know, you don't know how those gifts are going to come in your life. And I have so much sympathy for folks when it's like they have to rework their whole understanding of a relationship with God. And I, and I just think for me it was always like the church can do better. Our community can do better. And we can make systems that make this work better and fairer for people. So I don't think I had to overcome quite as much as some folks who, you know, just don't have an anchor or don't have a spiritual base. Yeah, I think it's easy to confuse the two, mm-hmm. church and God. Yeah. Because as you've said in, you know, your books and as you've talked about, God is love. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that is sometimes for I mean and, and that's probably our humanness where we mm-hmm. feel like well God let us down, but mm-hmm. really that's mm-hmm. the reality of being human. Right. And God being the only person to hold on to. So, um when did you become a, an Episcopal priest? So was that, was that something um you know, obviously, because your father was an Episcopal priest, was that just already in you? You know, girls it? weren't ordained when I was little, so it wasn't in me. I didn't even think about it. I was a math major at Suwannee in college, so it was during that time that people started ordaining women in the Diocese of Tennessee when I was in college. Um, and I just thought immediately, that makes sense, because all the things I want to do are about leading a community to be, you know, the hands and the feet of a loving God in this world. And so I'm ready. And they they let me through, and I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School, 
And I was ordained before I had my first baby. I mean, just before. I was like two weeks before I had my first baby, I got ordained. So I was like, you know, I got to raise my family as a pastor. It was awesome. That's really exciting. Well, and I also had an amazing husband. I mean, I married very, well, he was, yeah, he's a musician. And so he was always about creativity. So he loved the idea that I wasn't going to go on down this traditional path as a pastor that I was going to you know, try to live into some of these ideals that I really believed in about, you know, what it looks like for women to heal. I knew, I knew intuitively from an early age, the truth that, you know, you abuse, you rape women, you kill villages, but when you heal women, you can heal whole communities. And it's kind of like a lot of the stuff, I just felt like it was what I'd experienced and what I'd known and it happened that priesthood was available to me. It happened that I had a husband who was really supportive and a great fundraiser. And it just, it was really the whole thing. There was a lot of grace in it. Really sounds tied to, it's God's hand at work, really. I mean, it's tied to your journey of, of, you know, starting Thistle Farms. Right, and I didn't know that. But I didn't know that. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it feels like when you're going through it, it's just like, Wow, people are not saying, no, you can't do this. You can't have a house with five women who have criminal histories of trafficking and prostitution and addiction and say, no one's going to live in the house with the women. It's just going to be the five women creating community, and they're not going to pay anything, and they're going to live for two years. There was no put. People were like, oh, that sounds beautiful. Let's try it. Let's try it. And, you know, it happened slowly. And then looking back, I think I think it's so much easier to see how God's hand was at work in it. Absolutely. In the rearview mirror. (laughs) Then when you're going through it, it just feels like, oh, we should do this, or we should do this. And then it's like, oh, that was like I was really being led. And, you know, when you started this, when this idea was coming to mind, what was the reaction of a lot of people around you? Like, wow, are you really? Or go get it? Or what? People have, I mean, the thing, I mean, I've, I've been doing this now 23 years, so Thistle Farms, you know, it started residential, and then we grew into a social justice enterprise, became the largest justice enterprise for women survivors in the U.S. We have, you know, 30 global partners, 70 sister communities wow. around the country. It's grown and grown and grown. None of that was in the vision about it. I mean, it, there, I don't even really so much think about, like, vision anymore. I really think about community engaging the world and doing it together in a powerful way. That's my favorite thing. 23 years later, looking back, I'm telling you, like, I've heard horrible stories. I've heard awful things that have happened to people. But what blows my mind the most is how loving and caring strangers have been. I mean, they have paid for everything. Strangers have welcomed us into cities and homes. Strangers have helped us develop products and formulas and get, you know, labels correct. People that we didn't know before that we've met that become friends, you know, strangers that have become friends. And the generosity and compassion of people, it makes me weepy. I'm so grateful. And I think for all of us, if we think the only news that is happening is what happens when we swipe left, on our phone Mm -hmm. it would be so depressing there are so many good people out there doing so many good things and this work 
for decades has allowed me to meet a lot of those people all over the world. And so I am so, I'm amazed how generous and kind people are. Well, obviously, I think people must see the need and what you're doing is so important Mm. for people to want to try and help in any way they can. I don't, yeah. And and also, I think it's like people want to hope, right? Mm -hmm. And this is such a hopeful program. We have taken this idea of um, people who have been forgotten by the systems or people who have been just left out of opportunities and, and, and said, they still they have hope too. So let's figure out what we need to do to help them realize their dreams. So you get like, you know, there's so many women who have graduated the two-year residential program that are leading departments and they're going on the road and they're starting new communities. And That's they're the witness. It's amazing to me too. I mean, the woman you just met, Sheila, I mean, she came in. She was first, I think, first trafficked at the age of five years old. Oh, my gosh. And she went all across the country. She was trafficked and beaten and drug addicted and all of those things. You know, she talks about what it was like to be duct taped and thrown into the Salt Lake Canyon and surviving it. I can't wrap my head around it. She ended up in Tennessee. We met her. You know, 14 years later, she's finished her undergraduate degree in social work and finishing up her master's now. She's married, two kids, and she's the president and head of the National Outreach. She's a powerhouse. So she goes and speaks, and everybody's like, we can help women. Oh, my gosh, we can do these small things. She's living proof. She's living proof, and she's, you know, she gives money back. She helps develop new programs. She's a very big participant in, you know, the the growing economy of our country and her right. children and the communities that she's a part of wow she is she is the example of love compassion and you know as to what you were saying before it's just you know you know you can't give these people a chance give them the opportunity be there for them mm-hmm. and and look what happens mm-hmm. when you do they're not forgotten mm-hmm. you know that's that that's pretty amazing um so walk me through the process so there's somebody in need and and how does this work from start to finish um because one of the things i had read which i really loved and i kind of i read it actually twice because i thought that makes so much sense was when somebody comes in and correct me if i'm if i'm off or wrong or whatever but um you let them rest so kind of walk me through the process because when i heard that about resting it's like give your heart and your mind Mm -hmm. a break for a minute Mm -hmm. to catch up with yourself because what, I can't even imagine what some of these people have been through. But yeah, walk me through. Sure. Well, one of the things that you're talking about right now is just that how do people respond, you know, to the trauma in their life? And the idea of saying you have space and time to do the healing work you need to do, you can rest, is huge because it's not a trigger and it doesn't force me to do something I'm scared about or need to manipulate about or be angry about so that the healing can't happen. But I'll walk you through it. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting is we have interesting, sorry. One of the things I think that is really interesting is we have women calling us from all over the country. I bet I've gotten, I know I have, this week so far I've gotten three letters from women in three different prisons in three different states asking if there's any space for them here. We have over 100 women on our waiting list. And part of the reason we're developing this network is there's so many women 
so many women longing to find a safe place in a sanctuary. Women who have been on the streets way too long, you know. Um, prostitution might be the oldest form of abuse that we know in this world. But my feeling is that women shouldn't have to stay in it. You know, that they should, there should be options for people. And, you know, people don't choose that life. That's one of the myths out there. So what happens is people call and we, first thing is just try to find a safe place for them. So if it's not with us, maybe it's with one of our sister communities around the country, like one of the letters was from Colorado. It's like, go to our sister community in Nebraska. It'll be much easier than trying mm-hmm. to get to Nashville, Tennessee. They come in, and the first um, 90 days, it's really about what are your triggers and what, what can we do to make it this a safe and, and peaceful place for you. And, you know, not everyone has an addiction, but a lot of the folks that come in have addictions that go right along with trafficking and, and oh prostitution. One of the first things that the women do when they get there is to go through an IOP program, meaning an intensive outpatient therapeutic program. And it's usually just a few hours a day. And then you might start going to group classes. Um, You might start going to get assessments on your health. Like, are you needing glasses? Are you needing teeth? Are you needing meds for mental health stuff? Just let's figure out what your medical plan looks like. And then you might need to be going to the Rape and Sexual Assault Center here in Nashville or if you're in another city in one of our sister programs, there might, might be called just a you know, whatever the sexual assault center is in your area to learn about that. And then, you know, a few months down the road, you might start going to a lot more groups. Maybe it's around parenting and saving money. And then about four to six months, you're eligible to go to work. So before then, we you get a stipend so that it's not a lot of money, but you get enough money so that you can go get what you need to from the store but then you can go to school, you can go to work. We can, you figure that out with your um, social worker. But a lot of the women come here. On average, the women that we serve are first raped between the ages of 7 and 11, and they first hit the streets between 14 and 16 years old. So while, like you think about the Brentwood Academy kids, what they're trying to figure out in high school, the girls are figuring out which cars to get in and out of and how to make the most money. You know, I mean, it's just, it's really, it's a sad, sad story. So they don't have any work history. So they come here because they can start to learn um, how to show up on time for work. how to basic skills. Basic skills. Yeah. So that's kind of the process. You know, you do that. Then, you know, we have a match savings program. You can get a car. You start making restitution with your family, with your children, if you have any, with the courts. And then it's really a matter of sticking to it sticking to the programs you've started, sticking to the education, sticking to the treatment. And then at the end of two years, you graduate and you move into your own place. What must that feel like for you when you see that? Just oh, my gosh. watching this from start to finish. I, I can't even imagine when, just you sharing a little bit about some people here. Well, just That's, there's a woman named Michelle who's just graduated like two weeks ago. And she hugged me and she thanked me. She goes, thank you so much. I'm so, and I was like, are you kidding, Michelle? Thank you. I mean, you did it. That's such a, I'm so grateful she did it. It's such hard work, and she has overcome so much. And she came in, and I'm telling you, there was just like nothing. She couldn't, she couldn't stay at work inside more than about 10 minutes without having an anxiety attack. She would have to go outside. And, um, you know, 
now she's full-time you know her kids are in her life she's got a fire in her she's funny she looks at you and I'm like you know she gives me hope I'm so grateful to her so that thing of when love is healing there's mutual gratitude I think for sure so that's what it's like gosh that's amazing what I want to know okay so Thistle Farms this is a beautiful place and you've kind of shared how I know a lot of the women that work here are Mm -hmm. people that have gone through the Mm -hmm. program and are now working Mm -hmm. and have kind of made that journey Yes. So there's about um, about somewhere between 65 and 70% of all employees are graduates or residents of the program. And um, it's really funny to me that actually 65 cents of every dollar that we, um, we have for our whole not-for-profit comes from product sales. So it's about the same amount that wow. it's like... In other words, we're all... You know, we make... The, the social enterprise itself pays for itself, but we have to raise additional funds to help all the new women coming in. So it's almost like the staff of graduates pays for everything that needs to run it, and then we just raise the money for the new women. It's so beautiful. It really is. It's like a. It's almost like a full circle. You're, yes. you're putting back in yes. what you've been. And wow, wow, what a way to take ownership for your life and on the other end, coming out on the other end. That's really neat. I love it. That's amazing. Now, um, you talk about, in your book, Love Heals, um, that came out just recently, mm-hmm. um, about the thistle. So, why a thistle? Well, if you spend any time in Nashville, you know why I'm talking about the thistle. <laughs> um, you know, thistles were the last wildflower growing where the women were turning tricks and sleeping in the alleys and, you know, trying to score drugs they were there um, thistles were there around the climbing through the chain link fences around the Tennessee State Prison for women so I would see thistles when we would go out to meet the women and I thought what a beautiful plant really to you know it's a noxious weed and yet it's so beautiful still and it has all these healing properties that it made sense that that should be our mascot because like the thistle, the women that I was encountering, they, you know, there's like this br- survival by brutality, mm-hmm. deep tap roots, people that were resilient and could survive so much like the thistle, but also this sweet, beautiful purple center, you know, that reminds us that we all have this really soft side to us still. And it just seemed like the right, the right, exact right thing. And it, and thistles are used, I mean, if you go to, you know, like a drugstore now, like a Walgreens, you know, and you could get thistle extract and it really helps restore and detoxify your liver. And it's used for balance after trauma. So it's the perfect plant for us. (laughs) Yeah. You couldn't have found a better symbol for the healing of these women. And, and it was, and again, now it makes sense. But when I was doing it, it just seemed like, Oh, that's a, that's a fun idea. And farm just meant, you know, we were growing, hope we were growing love so thistle farms but now you know i mean we have a farm in rwanda that grows much of our essential oils we have a farm that we work with in the middle of mexico that has all the moringa that we use for our teas i mean there's a lot of farms that we have now 
That's amazing. I want to ask you a question about that, too. Sure. So the people that work the farm, are any of them people that are kind of in a similar program? Is it, Does the model yes. carry on there Yeah. in other countries? So all of our global partners and all our sister programs um, um, are women survivors. I mean, wow. So that's the whole cooperative. The idea is that if we can all link up, we can all do better in the marketplace. You know, there's a business side to all this justice work, too. And it's important to think about growing markets and mm-hmm. what your margins are and mm-hmm. how you can cut out more and more of the links in the market chain to raise the the benefits for the producers. So we're trying to do all the really smart things. One of, one of the best things I ever did was a few years ago was hire Hal Cato as the CEO here who has a great business sense and, um, you know, helps us figure out exactly how are we going to do this lavishly and lovingly mm-hmm. to all the women we serve and make money. Yeah. You know, so that we can keep doing this. Yeah. It, that is essential, an yes. essential part of <laughs> of running a business, too. Right. And, and, the, and the idea really, and I think this might, this is good for anybody, not just for us at Thistle Farms, but anybody listening, is to remember that justice is a non-competitive activity. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we can help each other. We can help women in Mexico, and we're not, you know, taking anything away from the woman we're helping in Nashville. We can help a woman in Rwanda and not shortchange anybody in Omaha. You know, we can do this. Amazing model how how this works. And you know, the other thing that kind of comes to mind when you start talking about these various countries that. the women you're helping there and where you're getting some of your product from is that it's not that we don't understand that this is a problem everywhere, but that when you hear that, you realize this is a, this is a global issue. It is a global issue. Wow. For sure. For sure. It's a global issue. That's the whole nature of human trafficking is that borders don't mean anything. And one of the latest places we've started working is the refugee, one of the refugee camps of Syrian refugees in Greece, because the link between refugees and human trafficking is huge. Yeah, More than 12,000 girls are missing from refugee camps last year. Just missing because, you know, again, the violence and vulnerability of poverty, mm-hmm. that's, you know, in, in, in a lot of trauma, you're setting girls up. It's a boot camp for human trafficking. Gosh. You know, I have to ask you something. Um, so I moved to Tennessee about four years ago mm-hmm. um and it's not that i haven't heard of trafficking or anything like that but when i pulled into tennessee so i have a question about tennessee if there's something that what why it may be perhaps if it's prevalent here but when i came into tennessee and crossed over the line and went to a rest stop and used the restroom and on the back of the door was a big poster mm-hmm. and i don't think i've ever seen a poster like that and that and it struck me as i looked at it and i thought is it is there something about just is it, is it prevalent in the Tennessee area? I mean, it's I'm prevalent. Something. So human trafficking is prevalent if you have an interstate and you have uh, um, you know the internet. Mm-hmm. If you have both those things, you're a prime place for human trafficking. I think the last survey they did is 95 counties in Tennessee have oh. human trafficking as you know mm-hmm. that they have you know what is it called? They have reports and data on that it's actually happening. That's not unique to Tennessee. What happened was when you came to Tennessee, that was about when the whole country kind of woke up to the domestic human trafficking that was mm-hmm. happening in our country. So anywhere that I go, people talk about it's really prevalent in Orlando. It's really prevalent 
in New Orleans. It's really prevalent in um, Iowa. It's really prevalent. In, you know, people are waking up to it, and so there's more and more of those signs and those rest stops. Partly because of an awareness, you know, in our whole country, the language changed. When we started out, that was not a term people used, human trafficking, modern-day slavery. They didn't talk that way. What they did talked, they call it? Well, I mean, it was awful. They talked about, like, crack horse, 14-year-old crack horse. I mean, that was what they, that you know, it was homeless girls or people that were just 14-year-old prostitutes. Now we understand that's actually human trafficking. That's abuse. When you have a 13-, 14-year-old girl on the streets where somebody is um, using coercion to Mm -hmm. get them to do what they need to do for drugs and sex, then we woke up to that. And the gift of that has been there's been so much more compassion. Now that we realize people are victims way before they're criminals, in the world of human trafficking and prostitution, programs started. Um, churches started wanting to do more education. You know, um, we all wanted to see how are we both turning a blind eye. What what do we need to do about hotels and rest stops that mm-hmm. were um, helping per- perpetrate this this crime right. against these young girls? Instead of saying, oh, we need to lock them up and put them in a detention center because they're acting out. Yeah, it makes it sound like as if it was a choice. Yes. Not that they're not a victim, but wow. I, I, I know, and I think it's been really good because people have had to say, if that is the choice, then you tell me what the options were for that 14-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah why don't we look at the bigger picture? Yeah. Why I just, hearing this is, is just such a, 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 a good thing because it sounds like just a, a better understanding you know, a changing of language and how we talk about that has completely opened eyes of people. Mm-hmm. You know, what what the bigger issue is. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. products you make here at mm-hmm. Thistle Farms. You haven't and, seen the place where we make the products, have you? No, and I would love to see Okay, we'll what do that. that. When we like. stop this, we'll walk over there real quick. Um, they seem very intentional. There's something about them when I was here Absolutely. the last time was very, there's something very calming, very smooth. The way they smell. I bought a hand lotion. I'm like, this makes me feel very peaceful right now. So tell me a little bit about why you chose the things you've chosen. Um, and does that, um, and the women making them, I mean, how does that all tie together? When we first started thinking about what we were going to make, I really wanted to make something that was going to be about healing for the body. That was the most important thing to me because, um, I mean, I hadn't met a woman and I still haven't coming off the streets of our city who hasn't been raped. And I thought we need to do something beautiful for the body to remind our to remind ourselves and maybe the world that our bodies are just beloved and worthy, no matter what they've gone through. And lavish oils seemed like it made the most sense, and it was a good product because there's really good markups on it. It has a long shelf life. <laughs> you know, I was a priest, so I know that how to blend oils. That's something I know. So that's what we started with. We started with body bombs and healing oils and candles. Very, very simple recipes. People can get them online. And that I knew I wanted to be as healing for the earth as it was for women's bodies. So it had to be, you know, organic, essential, good oils, you know. What I didn't know at all was that it would change the whole atmosphere of where we were working. I mean, the first thing that happens, people walk into the manufacturing space and they're like, it smells so good. good. The very first thing, and I'm like, 
We are breathing in peace mm-hmm. from the moment we walk in here till we leave, and we have such a vortex of chaos, you know, really, with all the issues going on, with all the people in this place, and yet there is this peaceful atmosphere that happens. It's just lucky. But people, thank you for buying stuff, first of all. Oh, that's why it's, it's so great that somebody buys a healing product. They feel healing. The producer feels healing. And a lot of times people are buying them as gifts, and the next person feels healing. It just mm-hmm. gives and gives and gives and gives. Well, the product is, is wonderful and does smell amazing because I also have a candle that I like to, you know, burn when I get home from work just because it's just that kind of decompressing. But um, but also I love, um, I love the piece about investing in something that I know is going to help someone else. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of you know, my decision making too sometimes when you buy things like this. I think it was like three or four weeks ago, Forbes magazine came out with an article about us about we we are an example of what's happening in the whole marketplace where you're a mission with a business instead of a business with a mission and how consumers really are drawn to that more and more that if there's a choice between two products and you know all natural body products pretty much have the same ingredients in them they're just different pricing depending on um how good the marketing is that's really it. I mean, there's how many, how different can a soy candle be from a soy candle? <laughs> you know, I'm serious. It's, yeah. all, it's all it's in it. Yeah. It's a soy candle with some essential oil. You're absolutely right. And so for us, what we've learned is that we keep gaining more and more in the market. We're growing at about a 30% clip because of the mission. And yeah. people want to, like, I do want to light that candle. And if I know I'm helping somebody by lighting it, I want that candle. Absolutely. And I've heard other people say that, too, about Thistle Farms. That oh, they cool. like to, that spending the money, even if it meant spending a little bit more money on a candle, they know where it's going. They know where that money's going, and it's going to a better purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a great thing. So I'm going to jump to, um, you know, your, your business model, your leadership. That has all been recognized far and wide. Um, and you speak on several topics, I'm, I'm assuming across the country, you probably mm-hmm. speak everywhere and one of the things you know i know that you speak on topics such as you know power of social enterprise you know how communities hope and then growing and sustaining leadership which you will be speaking about when you come to brentwood academy on april 11th and we're really excited about that um but talk a little bit about that not all of that because we can't wait for you to come and talk on a broader level but share with me a little bit about growing and sustaining leadership what does that look like because thistle farms is a model i think that it doesn't have to necessarily you know be it it strikes me something that can be applied in a great way um people can apply that in their own businesses absolutely so share with me a little bit about that well what i want to talk about i mean there's a lot of stuff i want to talk about and share some stories and hear what people are thinking about but the idea of encouraging people that they can live into their ideals you know, that you're not asking people as they learn and grow and go into their careers to um, abandon their ideals about what they really believe about love and justice and faith, that you're asking them to incorporate that. So how do we encourage that in young people? How do we encourage each other to keep living into our best ideals and making it marketable, making it sustainable and scalable and all those things we want it to be? And I think there's certain practices that enable that. I also think really to grow and sustain leadership, we have to move from this hero model 
the TEDx talks model where you think you have to have the answer and the vision and you have to be the solution to more of a host where you are helping a whole community come together and rally around, you know, what the best practices are. So moving from hero to host is another thing. The other thing that that I really want us to talk about when we get together is that, you know, we don't think outside the box if we never go outside the box. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like for all of us to venture outside? Me too. You know, to venture outside our comfort zones. What does that look like and how can we make that happen so we can start thinking a little bit differently? Because in my mind, all of us, if you look at Scripture, we're not called to change the world. We're really called to love it. And what I've learned is that if we are going to love it well, we have to be willing to change. And as long as we stay exactly where we are, meeting everybody that we completely agree with, reading everything that affirms what we are, we're not going to think any differently or do any changing. So how can we create a safe space where we can do some changing? And that's what I think really encourages new and amazing leadership. Absolutely. It's kind of getting past any any fear because you're right. It's so easy to stay in a very comfortable little mm-hmm. place. And Even then you have, want more. Yeah, and then you have all these strategic planning sessions and people yeah. want you to think amazingly different. And it's like, how are you going to think differently? We're in the same room we've been in for 20 years. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, and I'm sure you probably taking this step must have been like, okay, can I do this? I'm going to do it. And I keep having to take those steps. I mean, you know, one of, on my way to Belize next in the next week, you know, I haven't been to Belize before. Um, I'm heading to the prison to meet five women I've never met who have this interest in starting something I've never, I don't even know what they're interested in. And it makes me kind of feel both um, excited and nervous to say, I don't know that I want to start a whole new venture in a whole new country right now. i got a lot going on. But then also I think, okay, this is what I ask other people to do. So I need to go and just be open and be ready and trust that whatever needs to happen will happen. Circles back to trust. Mm. Kind of what you did from the very start. Mm-hmm. Well, Becca, this has been amazing. And I'm so excited to hear you on a, on a larger scale about growing and sustaining leadership again at Brentwood Academy on April 11th, 7 p.m. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited to see where Thistle Farms goes. I mean, you've already done so much and um, helped so many people. And it, I'm, I'm sure you're maybe not even halfway there because there's always room to grow and there's always great things and the hearing these stories are so encouraging and inspiring to you know I, I i look at this and i think wow i you know i see what some of these people have been through and the decision and choice to heal and move forward choose life and love is really encouraging so thank you for doing what you're doing oh my gosh you thank you for, for letting me be a part of it thank you thank, awesome. you thank you thank you Thanks for listening. It's always great to hear the wonderful stories, moments, and insights from members of the BA community. If you have an idea for a podcast episode, we want to hear it. Just visit BrentwoodAcademy.com forward slash podcast to submit your episode idea today.